Uh, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we ask that you would just be with us this morning. Um, help us to hear from you in that way that we can, that unique way that when we're gathered together, whether it's in person, remotely, however you work it in the Holy Spirit, you move and work in there to help us be united. And so we ask that you do that this morning uh, and that we would um, become more like you as we are together. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we are in week four of our fall sermon series entitled Get Wisdom, where we've been exploring uh, the book of Proverbs. And if you've been with us, there's a couple things you might remember. Uh, first, that uh, Proverbs is part of the Old Testament. That's a part of Scripture that occurs before Jesus is born as a human being here on earth. Um, and then it's also part of what we call the subgenre of literature within the Old Testament called the writings or the wisdom literature. And it's it's collected with the book of Psalms, a book called Job, and the Song of Songs. And those are all part of this genre called wisdom literature. And so they're seen as sort of having a collective uh, style of communicating, and within that then something uh, common that they might be communicating. And then uh, thirdly, it is a collection. This book of Proverbs is a collection or maybe a playlist of sayings, thoughts, philosophies, and discourses regarding wisdom by various authors. But the most uh, prolific of them in this is uh, King Solomon, who is the son of King David. Uh, and so he gets a lot of airtime in this list. Uh, and then lastly, that... Um, the final form was compiled sometime after the Israelites came back to Jerusalem uh, during their Babylonian captivity, where they, were, uh, they got taken away to Babylon, and then after a time they came back and were allowed to reestablish and rebuild the temple. That was in 537 B.C. And so the reason why I wanted that in there uh, is for us to remember that these things like timing and all those, they have an impact. And so as we're thinking about why might it be important for the people who put this together to do this? Well, if they're just coming out of a time where they're realizing, wow, some of the things we did and the ways we lived facilitated us ending up in captivity, maybe let's not do that again. Like, is it, it's probably a good idea to put together some things to help keep us uh, on the right track. And so that's just kind of a little bit of background on that. Um, there are a couple other things, a couple ideas we've been building off of as we've gone through this. And the first is this idea, the fear of the Lord. And what we've talked about is it's, it's got a couple of things tied to it, that there's this awe and respect that we have for God. Um, as we realize that, that God is the one who created the universe, right? And we likened it to being an astronaut who's out in space and, and being able to look out into the cosmos and uh, that feeling of, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm out in something so big, um, that when we encounter God, we might feel overwhelmed like that. But I really liked uh, last week how Rich kind of phrased it as it's also this time where we're taking God seriously, that there is a sobering reality that we're relating again to the God who created the universe, but who also delights in us and is working in creation to restore and redeem all things. And that even though God is love and delights in humanity and is slow to anger and quick to love, it doesn't say that God doesn't get angry. And it doesn't say that God is kind of present in the world. Scripture indicates that God is so involved in the world, in our lives, that the followers of God would say God dwells within us. That there's an intimacy that is so close that the Apostle Paul, like we read in Galatians a little while back, says what was revealed to him was Christ in him. So maybe the beginning of wisdom then is taking God seriously in a way that acknowledges that the God of the universe would dwell so closely to us that we would say 
that God is in us. Some of the other things, it takes time, and it's not a guarantee of anything. It isn't something we can just snap our fingers and get, and even if we ask for wisdom from God and God gives us wisdom, what we usually see is that not only does it take time, but that we may not always use it for the good or in ways that align with God's will in the world. Having all that kind of in our hearts and minds, I want to move into uh, what we're going to be looking at today, which is this theme that shows up several times in the book of Proverbs, and that's the theme of friendship. Now, the word friendship shows up, or the word friend, 14 times in the book of Proverbs. But the characteristics of friendship are all over. One of the interesting things is, is that this doesn't actually happen with the specific words until we get into the last two-thirds of the book. And I want to run us through some of the ones that occur there. It's going to be real quick as we go through these and just kind of get a feeling for what might be happening. The first is in Proverbs 12, 26, and it says, The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. And so there's this idea that wisdom has something to do with how we choose our friends. Again, the poor are shunned. Whoops, not that one. Here we go. Do not make friends with a hot-tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered. So again, Wisdom is, is helping us inform, like, who do we want to be shaped by and how do we want that to happen? Uh, wealth and friendship shows up a lot in Proverbs. And so this one, the poor are shunned even by their neighbors, but the rich have many friends. Well, that doesn't sound great. Um, another one, wealth attracts many friends, but even the closest friend of the poor person deserts them. Well, this doesn't look like friendship is turning out to be as great as we thought. Many curry favor with a ruler, and everyone is the friend of the one who gives gifts in Proverbs 19, 6. Uh, right after that, the poor are shunned by all their relatives. How much more do their friends avoid them? Though the poor pursue them with pleading, they are nowhere to be found. Okay, we look at some things that can damage friendship. A perverse person stirs up conflict, and a gossip separates close friends. Whoever would foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friend in Proverbs 17.9. And then just a few more. Proverbs 22.11, one who loves a pure heart and speaks with grace will have the king for a friend. Okay. Um, 27.9, perfume and incense bring joy to the heart and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. Uh, 27.6, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies Kisses. I'm going to sit with that one for a while. 27.10, do not forsake your friend, a friend of your, or a friend of your family, and do not go to your relative's house when disaster strikes. You better a neighbor nearby than a relative far away. And just two more. Uh, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity in Proverbs 17.17. 17. And then in 18.24, one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, there's a lot going on in those passages, but I wonder if you notice the same thing I did, that there is this tension that we have to deal with. And I think this tension helps us both understand friendship, but also something about the Proverbs. Because it seems like there are some Proverbs that actually contradict each other. How do you have it that even the closest friends desert the poor, but then there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother? or a friend that loves at all times, but at the same time we have moments where the friends are avoiding the people they call friends when they are in dire situations. How is this? 
Does it have to be one or the other? I don't think it does. When we look at the world, when we look at our lives, do we see times where I wasn't able to find a friend? Do we remember moments of loneliness when we really felt that reality set in on us? But then all of a sudden, maybe we did find someone who would stick with us through whatever we're going through. Proverbs isn't afraid to walk us through that tension. And that's part of wisdom, realizing that tension, being aware of it, but also knowing it, kind of knowing it in our bodies and in our bones, experiencing it. And I want to take that and, and kind of what we've seen in Proverbs, all these characteristics about friendship, but specifically these ones of sticking close, staying with someone, even though there's a reality that at times friends don't do that. Because I think what Proverbs does is sort of looks at the world and says, yeah, this is how it most often is, isn't it? We see friendships that, oh, they don't really last through those tough times. But then there's this other side that says, so don't, don't be that. Let's be something different. Right? How can we stay with people through the difficult times? And I want to use those to launch into the bigger narrative of the Bible, look at some other stories, and see how that carries out. And so, if you travel a little bit further back in your Old Testament, we come across a story of two friends named David and Jonathan. Now, David and Jonathan have a friendship that goes all over the place. Jonathan is the son of Saul, who's the first king of Israel. Okay, so he's the heir to the throne. David, though, has been told by God through a prophet named Samuel that he's actually going to be the next king. And these two, David and Jonathan, become best friends. And we read about this friendship in 1 and 2 Samuel, and, and Saul the king, Jonathan's father, becomes insanely jealous of David because he's, he's kind of raising David up. David is part of the army and is winning all these battles and coming back and the people are cheering louder for David than they are Saul. And Saul starts to carry this jealousy. And it goes so far that there are times when Saul tries to kill David. And then David has opportunities to kill Saul, but he doesn't. He resists. But then at the same time, we'll sort of yell out to Saul, hey, Saul, I could have just killed you, but I'm not going to, right? So, and that's got to be an awkward situation, right? right? I, just think, I just think the way these things work out. And, and as, you know, as I'm thinking through this, I'm thinking, okay, what things caused stress in my friendships growing up? Not this, right? This was not the situation I grew up in, and many of us didn't. I don't know all your stories. Maybe there's things that are similar, but... You have to be able to imagine that these things put stress on this friendship. So how did they respond to this? And specifically, how did Jonathan respond? Because he's kind of caught in the middle of his best friend and his father who were trying to kill each other at times. And we read in 1 Samuel 18, 3 through 5. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his belt, his bow and his belt. And whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army and this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. And so you can see that rising up that is happening to David. Now it's Saul doing it, but then Saul's gonna get jealous about it. And we see in the midst of that that Jonathan does this thing called making a covenant. 
And a covenant is it's sometimes been likened to a contract, but that's not a, a contract is very formal and kind of legal, right? This is like a contract in your heart, right? That when you make a commitment to somebody in your heart, right, that's what it looks like. And one of the things that this reveals, because this covenant reveals some things about the nature of this relationship, is that Jonathan didn't consider his own reputation or status to be above that of his friend David. Jonathan, again, is the son of the king. He's the one who's supposed to be the next king, but whether he knows it or not, David's going to be the next king. Samuel may have told him, we don't know. But Jonathan's response is to give up the things that identified him as the son of the king. His robe, his armor, all that stuff would have been specifically made for him. Geared not just really high quality for battle and all those things, but also to show everyone this is the son of the king. So Jonathan gives that up. But it's not just that. Right? These are the things that in battle, as a soldier, he would have used to fight and protect himself. And I think symbolically what we see in this is David or Jonathan is saying, I don't need these things with you. I don't have to come into this relationship ready to fight. I don't have to come into this ready to defend and protect myself. And so not only am I not going to do that, I'm going to give these over to you. I'm going to make myself vulnerable to you. And that's part of this kind of friendship. It's a huge risk. We run the risk of getting hurt. Now, lots of other philosophies and religions of the time, and still today, preach that one of the ways to avoid being hurt is you just don't have any attachments to anything or anybody. Right? And, and so it, it's an ancient philosophy, but we also see it sort of popping up in some modern places. Right? Some of us are big Star Wars fans. One of the things that the Jedi talk about is you can't have these attachments. Right? Because that makes it so you can get hurt. And in fact, what happens is if you respond to attachments, you can end up going to the dark side. Right? And then you could, because you're responding, I really love this person, I want to protect them. Now I'm going to disobey some of these other rules that the Jedi have set up so that I can act on that. Right? And so I, I think to some degree, absolutely, it's true. If you decrease the amount of attachments, you will have less pain. But it's also devoid of love. Right? That's the other side of those attachments is love and flourishing life is lived out there. Now, one thing I want to make really clear is I'm talking about making yourself vulnerable. It is absolutely critical that we understand that this has to be voluntary. There's no forced vulnerability. We're not talking about relationships where people are hurting you when you've not made a choice to love them in a way that makes it possible for them to do that. And all people should have the freedom to be able to, to decide whom they make themselves vulnerable to and under what circumstances. And where this gets really tricky is when there's a power aspect that comes into play. And we have to be careful that our levels of vulnerability are appropriate and that someone who's already vulnerable due to rank, economic differences, ethnicity, cultural systems, maturity, or physical power discrepancies, they're not being forced to become more vulnerable without their choice. 
Now, going back to our story. In 1 Samuel 31, we read that Jonathan dies in battle, fighting in a war against the Philistines. And then we have this lament from David. Um, and uh, David says this in 2 Samuel 1, 25 through 27. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of a woman. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. Now in the Old Testament, there are several words in Hebrew for love. Like our language, there are different spins on how we love. We might say, I love pizza. And we might say, I love this person. And hopefully when we're saying that, we mean different things, right? Some of us are pretty fond of pizza, though. Um, but, um, it's, and it's the same in Hebrew. And, and the, the word here that is used for love shows up 40 times out of the nearly 425 times that love is used in the Old Testament. And so this word is ahava, uh, and it means it's a human love for a human object, so it can be uh, from one man to another man, one woman to another woman, a man or a woman towards themselves, or between a man and a woman, but it also means God's love for his people. Okay, But what I do when I see that it, a certain word talking about love is used 40 times out of 425 times that the word love occurs is I want to know what makes this one unique. Why put that one in in these places? And so I'm going to read through a handful, not all 40 for sure, a handful of these verses and just see if we can start to pick up. Is there a theme in here? Is there something specific about this word? Okay, first is Deuteronomy 7, 8. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I see in there this idea of the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore. Right? There's, there's this enduring, there's this faithfulness to a word given. Next is Genesis 29, 20. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Now there's some backstory that needs to be given here. Jacob finds the love of his life, this woman named Rachel, and goes to her father Laban and says, I would love to marry your daughter. Is that okay? And Laban says, absolutely okay. You just have to come and work for me for seven years, and then you can marry my daughter. And so he does that, and, it, and that's what it's speaking of, that these seven years felt only like a few days because of his love for her, the same ahava, the same word for love. And it, it, it indicates this endurance, right, that not only helped him get through it, but made it seem like it wasn't as long as it was. Now, Laban tricks him again, and he has to work another seven years. It doesn't say the same thing about that, so he might have been a little less happy about the second four years. Um, Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers all over all wrongs. I want to make sure we understand that this is not saying that, oh, someone does something wrong, we just don't talk about it. That's not what this means. You have to look at what it's compared to. Hatred stirs up conflict. Hatred goes around and tries to make conflict happen, seeks it out. Let's kick this beehive and get things rolling. The idea here is that love covers that in the sense that it carries and holds it, and that conflict isn't powerful enough to break love. 
But love can contain it. Love can provide an avenue for resolution and redemption to happen. Uh, Song of Songs uh, 2-4. Let him lead me to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. This image, this banner, it's like it tells the universe. I'm not going to turn my back on this person. I'm not going to abandon them. I have declared that I love this person. Lastly, in Song of Songs 8, 6, and 7, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, its jealousy unyielding as the grave, it burns like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. I think in all these, and if we go back and look at all the other verses where this word for love occurs, and even though they're addressing many different types of relationships, I think there is a consistent fiber that sort of runs through it. And that's what I'm going to call enduring faithful presence. Because it's uh, God's enduring faithful presence that Israel was led out of Egypt. It's that same enduring faithful presence that Jacob was able to endure seven years of waiting. It made it seem like it was just a few days. It's the enduring faithful presence Presence that doesn't seek out conflict, but holds and believes that love can not only endure conflict, but is strong enough to bring redemption. It's enduring faithful presence that covers over someone else like a banner declaring, I will not abandon you. And it's the same enduring faithful presence that waters cannot quench, rivers cannot wash away, that is more valuable than all the wealth in the world, and is indeed stronger than death. And the source of this all is God. And it is so very good. Jesus lives and loves this way. And we are empowered, just as Jesus was by the Holy Spirit, to live the same way. And this is what Jesus invites us into, a relationship with God, into the faithful presence of God and one another. That's what the church is meant to be. It's what we're meant to bring to the world, that they would see and know this love this enduring faithful presence that brings flourishing and good life. But what does that look like today? How does that operate for us in these times? Because again, that tension is still there. When we care for people this way, we're going to be hurt. It's not a matter of if it happens because it's going to happen. And some of that is something that we can endure But sometimes when we hear a message like this, we leave thinking that we have to endure everything. This is not a message about enduring that way. It's not about enduring through an abusive relationship or anything like that. Because there are definitely times where we not only need to, but I believe we are called to set boundaries. I believe that Jesus set boundaries. And I would invite and encourage you all to do a read-through of the Gospels being aware of that, attending to that, trying to investigate where did Jesus set boundaries of some kind? Was it when he went away alone to pray? The times he escaped from a group of people who were trying to get him to be or do something that he wasn't supposed to be. There are times where he tells some of the disciples, you come with me, right? And the others are somewhere else doing something. There are all kinds of times where Jesus is very much aware of who's around and what he's doing. And it's all because it was not the right time for certain people to be around. 
It was not the right time for certain things about Jesus to be known. And so there was this level of discernment going on with the Holy Spirit to help him know when it was the right time for those boundaries to be there and then how to set them. At the same time, though, it's the same kind of discernment, the same kind of intimacy and closeness with the Father through the Holy Spirit that let him know now's the time to endure. When it was time to go into places and enter these relationships through that same discerning help from the Holy Spirit and go in in ways where he could and would be hurt. And it was that love that enabled Jesus to endure the cross, endure his death so that he would be resurrected in order to bring a flourishing life to everybody. Now, I've been watching, listening to this podcast called The Friendship Onion. Uh, and it's Billy Boyd and Dominic Monaghan who played Mary and Pippin in the Lord of the Rings movies. And out of that, they became great friends. And this podcast, they just sit and talk about anything and everything. Sometimes it's quantum physics. Sometimes it's a story about diarrhea. Sometimes they read emails from fans and answer questions, but then they love to talk about food that they've tried. In fact, they have fans uh, send them food ideas for this part of their show they called uh, Billy and Dom Eat the World, and then they try these things, and then they, uh, they rate them. Um, they just did smoked oysters, and that was their first not favorite one. Uh, but I have so enjoyed this podcast. It's super fun and interesting. But what I really enjoy is there's this sense of being invited into their friendship. And so I wrote them an email saying that I so appreciated what they were doing and how they invite us in in that way. And, that, and, and, and what I was thinking is that this is kind of the same thing that God does invites us into the relationship that exists in the Trinity, this thing we talk about, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that they exist together in this way that is pure love. And we're invited to be present in that, like they're all sitting at a table, and we get to come be at the table. But unlike this podcast where they have a little bit of interaction, but it's mostly us sitting and listening, with God, we get to sit and be in the conversation. We are part of what is going on in a way that matters. And so in this, in this email I wrote them, as I wrapped it up, I just said, uh, may everyone know the level of friendship that you two have found. It was right at that same time that Angie uh, showed me this article that was written in the New York Times uh, about this woman named Marissa, who was out with a friend and her phone starts buzzing, and she's trying to be... Uh, a good, faithfully present person to her friend, and so she's attending to that, but her phone is just bzz, bzz, just going off. And so she finally takes a look, um, and it's all these people, her, a bunch of her friends saying, have you seen the TikTok video? Now, I usually just delete messages like that, but these were from some people she knew and cared about, so she actually clicked on it, and there's a link of this guy that appears on the screen. It says, if you are Marissa, please listen. I just overheard a bunch of your friends say they were deliberately choosing to hold a birthday party when you were out of town. And you need to know, TikTok, help me find Marissa. And it turns out that she was indeed the Marissa that was being talked about. And she was being excluded from this gathering. And it wasn't like, let's, let's do it when she's not here because we're going to surprise her with something good. It was, we don't want her around. Let's hold this party when she's not here. 
And so she decided, I'm going to tell my story. And I don't know if she, I don't think she like told any of their names or anything like that, but she just said, this is what happened. And she all of a sudden had like 5,000 responses from people saying, come to my birthday party, come to this wedding, come to this housewarming we're having. And so she said, that's really awesome. But also in this, there were lots of people saying, I've had similar things happen. And so she decided, there's a lot of people who are in this space. What can we do? So she set a meetup in Central Park outside. And 200 people showed up and hung out for over eight hours. And so she started this thing called No More Lonely Friends. And now she's hosted outdoor meetups in several major cities across the country, being sure that everyone knows they're outdoor, they're doing social distance. This is also in June when uh, restrictions were a little bit lighter. Um, And so, uh, but they've done several of these and people will show up and play games, talk. There's people playing guitars, all kinds of stuff. And they will, it's always at least eight hours. There's a need for connection and for faithful presence in our lives in this world. And this pandemic has shifted how we do that. But the church has been empowered by the Holy Spirit throughout its history to find creative ways to connect with people. To be the body of Christ, extending this kind of love to the people around us. Now before I get into just the wrap-up, I do want to add that So far, kind of what I've talked about most is how we're supposed to care for and and we're supposed to be these kind of friends. And that's true. I believe we are. But you may be in this space right now where you're feeling like, actually, I haven't had any friends around. And they're very hard to find. And I want you to know that we're here for you today. Wherever you're at, contact us. Reach out to us. We will respond. We will be friends. It might take a little bit, but we will get there. And also I want you to know that Jesus is absolutely with you. The friend of friends, really that God is the origin of friendship. And so Jesus is with you. And so my prayer and exhortation for us today is that as we leave this time that we would be uh, more informed by the enduring faithful presence of God. The love and faithful friendship of Jesus in our lives And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would love those around us in the same way. I want to ask the worship team to come up in just a moment. I'm going to read a few questions, and then they're going to play instrumentally to give you a a moment to reflect on really anything that you've heard, responded to, felt this morning. Not just during the sermon time, but during uh, the music, announcements, whatever it is. Uh, A time to reflect, time to digest a little bit. Um, If you want to send any responses, questions, any of that to us, uh, do that on the digital uh, connection card. There are some connection cards on the seats here you can write on also. Uh, You can email us or text us, um, uh, and that's all great. We'd we'd love to hear from you. And also, I want to remind you, the prayer team is going to be available for you for the rest of the service. So if there's anything you wanted to pray about, now is the time. Uh, Please, please do that. my questions for this morning, I have four of them, uh, and some of them aren't so much questions, so if you're thrown by the question mark at the end, that's just my bad grammar. Um, number one, think of someone who has been faithfully present to you, right? Maybe in the last month, maybe sometime in your life. Who is someone who has been faithfully present to you in the way we've described this morning? Number two, is there someone that God has placed on your heart this morning 
uh, as a person you could be faithfully present to. And you might find that you've actually been thinking about this for a few months, and all of a sudden as we're talking this morning, you go, oh, yeah, it's that person. That's kind of how God works sometimes. He kind of builds things over time uh, that way. But, but who is someone that might be just coming to your mind even right now? Three, uh, because it's important in all this, I think, to, to, to be able to know when it's important to engage this way, what is your process for establishing boundaries and knowing the when and how to be faithfully present to someone? Do you even have a process? Right? Do you have sort of something that you're aware of? Oh, this is kind of the sign to me for myself. I'm starting to do this. Ah, I might be overextended. I'm, and, and not in a way where God's going to come in and help you, but in a way that I actually need to step back or I need to... To, to take a break from that. What is your process? Do you even have one? Uh, and fourth, uh, how has Jesus been faithfully present to you recently? Right? And maybe you think, oh, I can't think of a time. Go ahead and go back to, I don't know, when you were born. And between that and now, right? Uh, sometimes we read the Bible and we think every day was like these big moments. And uh, trust me, there were times in between some of the stories we have where it may have actually seemed a little boring. Um, but... Uh, yeah, you can take that and do what you want with it. Um, so let's pray, and then we're going to have a couple moments to reflect, um, and then we'll enter into a final song and a benediction. God, I give you great thanks uh, for this day and for your presence with us. Lord, a faithful presence um, that you are with us enduringly, uh, patiently, lovingly, kindly, in ways that challenge us, in ways that facilitate growth, but in ways, in all things, bring flourishing life. Lord, help us to respond to that. Help us to have that same sense that Jesus did about knowing when it's time. When it's time to engage. When it's time to put ourselves in those places where we're going to be vulnerable. And also know when it's time to, nope, this isn't, this isn't for me right now. Um, help us to, to notice when Jesus did that. Lord, give us insight into when to do that. Um, but in all, I pray that we would be able to be your body, Jesus, and, and bring that same kind of enduring, faithful presence to the people around us, um, that they would know love and know you. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.